I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Team Human is an ad-free, listener-supported project made possible by teammates like Yarrow Kaisley, Garrett Perkins, Barbara Feliciani, Sounder Noise, Patrick Hogan, and hopefully you. Just go to teamhuman.fm and click on support to find the others who gain access to our Discord channel, my paywalled medium posts, archives of my collected work and conversations with luminaries like Timothy Leary and Terence McKenna, and participation in our live Team Human salons and kibitz room. The next one will be July 23rd at 12 p.m. New York Eastern Time. See you there. You're on Team Human, Conscious Intervention in the Machine, a fractal approach to social change, where we influence larger systems not through ends justifies the means journeys, but by turning moment-to-moment living into a conscious practice. Sometimes, the biggest stuff begins in the face-to-face. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I'm on Team Human. Playing for Team Human today, two of the co-champions for codes, Coalition for Digital Environmental Sustainability, David Jensen and Elian Ubalijaro. How do we have technologies that empower all, that move us away from command and control, and that help us live our interconnectedness in the same way that in within biological systems? You know, if you have a body, you can't say, I'm going to choose between my liver and my heart. Everything matters, everything's important. David and Elian are going to help us see how to marry big top-down efforts with bottom-up reality. It's time to intervene on behalf of people. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and we're all on Team Human. I feel like I keep saying this, but the last few weeks have been particularly destabilizing for a lot of us. 
And if my if my email inbox is any indication, it's been particularly destabilizing for anyone who believes that women should have authority over their bodies, who support the idea that the Environmental Protection Agency should be able to regulate something, or who can't shake the suspicion that America's uniquely high rate of mass shootings just might be correlated with America's uniquely broad proliferation of military weapons among civilians. And combine all that with the January 6th hearings, with widespread belief in fake election conspiracies, and the strong possibility that gerrymandering and the legal ability of state legislatures to overturn voting results altogether may make democracy impossible for at least a few cycles. And it's no wonder that so many people want to cry or fight or run away. I'm still seeing a lot of emails from people moving to Canada, Germany, Europe. You know, it's easy to catastrophize our situation. And true enough, I agree, our empire, our civilization may be coming apart. You know, our nation may be succumbing to authoritarianism, and our most organized activists and determined politicians seem to be succeeding in their quest for theocratic rule. It's not pretty to watch. As real people suffer, most of us feel utterly helpless to change the pictures and stories coming at us through our screens. So maybe the answer at least for the moment, is not to focus on changing those pictures. It's just too big. The scenarios we are witnessing occurring on TV, they're they're occurring on a scale too large for us to behold, much less act upon directly. I remember in acting school, we were taught this simple technique we were supposed to use if things ever got totally out of control on stage, supposedly from Stanislavski, but I've never been able to track it down in a book. The idea was to have a kind of a backup plan or a reboot button if we forgot our lines or lost our place in the play or simply had no idea what was happening, just freaking out on stage. So instead of trying to act or portray our character or do the right thing in the play, we were supposed to kind of stop and acknowledge the simplest reality. You know, I am Douglas. I am on a stage in New York in a production of The Seagull. I am playing Treplev. The actor in front of me is playing Nina. My character is supposed to be angrily placing a dead bird at her feet. And then slowly the reality of the scene takes hold again and you kind of find your place. You know, I'm not on the Supreme Court, nor am I at the January 6th hearings. I'm not in Uvalde or Highland Park or Ukraine or Louisiana, but I am here in a living community where I can start to make 
change. I can take an inventory of my own situation, my own capacity for mutual aid, and my own willingness to take responsibility for others, whether or not I happen to like them. I can expand beyond that to look at where my teacher's retirement fund invests its money, and whether that capital is doing something I approve of, or simply making things worse. And then, well, what can I do about that? So no matter how bad things get, the basic principles of ethical behavior, promoting justice, and building solidarity with others remains the same. Locally and interpersonally, it works under any system of government or oppression. It's the answer to both global social change under pressure, as well as the solution to the prisoner's dilemma, responsibility for others. I fully understand the limits of this approach. It's too small. It's too local. How dare we look to improving our own communities when there are people getting bombed in Ukraine? And I'd answer, we dare, because it's the first step toward gaining the coherence we need to do anything else. And because the more resilient we can make our own communities, the less they will contribute to the brittle, paranoid dysfunctionality of our nation. Each individual and community that learns to think and behave rationally and empathetically and collectively contributes less to the empowerment of the extractive corporations and rabble-rousing dictators alike. And sure, we can learn more about national and global issues. We're going to do that on the show today. And how our actions and spending fit into the larger systems of which we're a part. But the pictures and stories coming through our screens, they are not the cause of our societal collapse. They are the results. We don't change those pictures by stepping into them or even obsessing over them. If anything, that imagery is one of capitalism's systemic tactics for self-preservation. Put us in a state of such fear and panic that we lock the doors, shut out those who need our help, and fixate instead on on the resulting doom. For a vast majority of us, the most efficient way to undermine the cycle of powerlessness, this induced amnesia, is the same for the actor who has forgotten their lines. Feel your feet on the ground, then remember who you are, what you're doing, and how you want to influence the play. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. 
So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. On the other hand, there are real people doing real change at the highest levels of international cooperation. We don't need everyone working with heads of state or the United Nations or the World Bank, but I'm glad some people are, and especially when it's people like David Jensen and Elian Ubalijaro. I met David Jensen online in an email a few weeks ago, back when I was getting a lot of email from people starting up really big things. His idea was to get the United Nations to engage with the way digital technology impacted its 17 sustainable development goals. He was starting this thing called the Coalition for Digital Environmental Sustainability. So I remember I I kind of said, Go for it. And I referred him to my colleague and early Team Human guest, Rick Maxwell, who works on technology and the environment. But I watched as he slowly grew his effort and got the attention of the United Nations and eventually built a genuine coalition having real impact on the way the world's leading global organizations work on these issues. As many of you know, I've always been suspicious maybe even a little allergic to the way big organizations operate. But they are a part of the greater global ecosystem, and appropriately directed, they can do more good than harm. I wanted to find out how, and so I invited David, as well as his colleague Elian Ubalijaro, a member of Rwanda's National Science and Technology Council and now Global Hub Director in Canada for Future Earth, to help us think through how to balance the top down and the bottom up. Here's our conversation. I'd gotten some emails from David maybe three or four years ago that he was starting this thing. And I'm the kind of person who gets a lot of emails from people starting big things or things that sound like they're going to be big things. And it's like, okay, you know, once I raise the first hundred million dollars, then I'm going to set up, you know, 30 education centers, you know, in Africa and 25 in here. And I'm like, okay, yay, go. And anytime also when people mention, you know, you know, United Nations sustainable goals, I also think like World Bank, IMF, give a loan to Haiti, never let it be paid off, you know, well-meaning corporate extraction kinds of stuff. But then uh, slowly over time, it looked like David actually had, had created something that's not evil, accidentally or intentionally evil. That oh, it seems co-created. Let's use the right words here. Co-created oh, something. There you go. So uh, could you uh, first, it'd be great. Could you explain to me what, what quite it is? Well, basically, at a, at a very simple level, it's a group of people that want to kind of harness the power of digital technologies for sustainability, for climate action, for biodiversity protection, for pollution prevention. Like it's basically trying to harness the upside of technology and mitigate the downside. And it's people, I would say it's people and organizations that see the potential, that want to collaborate, and that want to uh, do it in the context of, you know, a, a UN umbrella. Um, so that's kind of a, in, a, in a very clear nutshell or a very simple nutshell what we're trying to do. I mean, we've tried to 
develop a very bottom-up process, like listening to what people think are the big needs across the world and trying to synthesize that into some kind of strategy action plan. So that was what we did for last year. Like, what do you think, like, how do we bring digital transformation and sustainability together as a, as a, you know, as a powerful force for good? And how do we mitigate the downside of that? And so that's what we have been doing over the last year is asking that question, working with stakeholders to answer that question and trying to define a series of nine priorities to take that forward. I'm a person who believed in digital technology's potential to unleash um, effective global transformation at scale, you know, since the late 80s and early 90s. And over the last 40 years, watching digital technologies development and then learning about marks and angles and economics and scale, I started to see digital technology as an enabler and sometimes uh, camouflage for globalism. So how do we know that how do we know that you know using technology, say to tag all these global products so we know what they are, are we just kind of giving cover for uh, scaled solutions that should be replaced by local ones anyway? Yeah, I mean, I think every technology is a double-edged sword. It depends on how it's governed completely. So you're totally right. It could be just a smuggling, you know, smuggling in of of colonial, you know, colonialism and and corporate uh, corporate power. It could be. Um, it all depends on how it's governed ultimately, right. and that's why you know that's one of the reasons why I think the Codes Coalition is so important is because we're really calling for broad, inclusive processes, transparent processes, diverse processes. We don't want a small segment of the corporate world or even a small region to to dictate and dominate how these standards are built. We want it to be global, inclusive, and and very much needs-based. And I think, you know, I think we can we can deal with some of these risks if the governance is, you know, right and if it's inclusive and global. If it's not, I have I have the same concerns. I mean, I, I would say that I'm about 60% optimistic and 40% pessimistic, right? I'm still on the optimistic side, but it scares the hell out of me, you know, what could happen if it's not governed correctly. The only way to to deal with this is to have those key stakeholders at the table, uh, you know, and and have that happen within a broader, let's say, UN process or some kind of inclusive multi-stakeholder process where you have those voices potentially balanced against the needs of civil society, governments, academia. I mean, that has to be at least the vehicle or the process that we take forward. Because, I mean, digital technologies are way better at enabling scaled solutions than they are so far at promoting local uh, peer-to-peer solutions you know, so far. And it's partly because well, that's how they work. You know, so, so you know, you, you, you take an example, well, a simple one I, I use a lot of, um, we harvest shrimp in the Gulf of Mexico, put it on big boats, ship it to Vietnam, where it's shelled by hand by low-wage laborers, put back on boats and ship back frozen to the U.S. where it's used in restaurants. And we, I mean, because of various forms of, of uh, 
subsidize, you know, uh, subsidizing and and market capture and all. This is allowed to go on, even though clearly it's not the most efficient way to do it. It's just the cheapest way to do it in the short term. So we can. So when I think about uh, global digital supply chain issues, where the opportunity would be to say, okay, now that we are digitizing this and we're looking at where all this stuff is moving around, now can we paint a picture of how energy inefficient it is to move stuff around like this? And can we, can, in other words, rather than stopping at the tagging, how do we then build the next step is to build policies to, in other words, that's when you say systems thinking, the beauty of systems thinking is it paints a picture of the world that we can see. Oh my God, we are just fakakta here. Right. And, and shift it. So this is where I really think um, that the, a lot of work that's happening around the world around accounting and accounting for nature, accounting for social capital and human capital is critical because when we bring that into our, our, our vision of how we look at value in the world, then it changes. We realize that, you know, that back and forward to try and think minimizing cost and maximizing profit isn't actually maximizing value. And so we need to go from a profit-driven economy to a values-driven economy and a values-driven economy that ensures that, you know, people, a society, that nature benefits from everything we're doing. And so our accounting systems need to take that into consideration. And as I think, as we move towards that process, some of the things we're doing today because they're purely profit-driven, will not make sense anymore in terms of how are we accelerating what we need to do to live uh, in the climate-positive, nature-positive world where we're really maximizing the return of biodiversity, where we're uh, ensuring the maximum sequestration of uh, greenhouse gas emissions, and we're trying to live within the two degrees Celsius uh, that we need if we want to keep uh, the planet livable for most. So, so how we look at our economy is going to have to be more and more interlinked. How we look at risks, how we look at climate, and everything we do has to really be moving into the nature positive, you know, net zero uh, sphere to really be uh, viable economically. Just to extend that argument, you talked about tagging. I mean, tagging is kind of, you know, tracking and tracing is kind of a first step, as you said. But ultimately, we need to get to the point where we can actually compare the footprint of different products and services uh, in the same product category and give that information to consumers to allow them to, you know, at least uh, compare apples to apples in terms of the carbon footprint. But even that's not, frankly, enough. A A lot of consumers won't necessarily sort of take that information into account. So I think we need to go beyond that towards nudging, right? Starting to use digital nudging and help and incentives and gamification to really get consumers to start to see these 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 massive discrepancies in terms of the footprint of these products and really help them and enable them to take more sustainable choices. So I, I do think it's not just, it, it, as you say, tagging is the first step, right? Yeah. Tagging and tracing is the first step. But then there's multiple steps beyond that, that that are needed. Right. I mean, but then when you talk about nudging and gamification, we're saying, well, can we use the master's tools to take down the master's house. In other words, the, the we're talking about the tools of, of nudging and behavioral finance and influence. And we know the d- digital technologies are great, you know, and we can build algorithms to figure out, oh, when we lean left, they're going to do good. When we do red, they're going to do that. And we can use all the same nudging tools to try to induce good behaviors or to incentivize them through gamification. But, but do we create, do we generate 
autonomous human beings that way? Or are we just in an arms race against the bad guys to control behavior better than they do? Well, I'd like to say part, part of the process, you know, is, is, is we need to bring greater awareness to everything we do. And we right. need to ensure that the power base is at the bottom of the pyramid in terms of citizens engaging as with the highest level of consciousness in terms of their purchasing power, in terms of their decision-making power, in terms of their voting power. And so it's really how do we ensure we bring back power Yes. To the base. And I think that is something we need to accelerate in the digital age, because what we've seen, we look through um, COVID, you know, all the big tech companies were making a lot of money while people were losing jobs, while a lot of, you know, the healthcare workers were overworked. Uh, so much was happening at the bottom of the pyramid at people work in, 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 in helping healthcare industries that support everybody else's lives. And so one of the things we need to do is, is, the, the power of the symmetry is something we need to profoundly disrupt. Mm -hmm. And as we disrupt that, you know, the nudging can be a tool in terms of giving people their power back. But, but it really requires all citizens to realize that they have power in the system and that the more we collectively use that power to live in harmony with nature, that the more we're going to have governance systems that reflect our values and not fear-based systems that are controlling us. So that's the deep disruption we need to bring about. I mean, and some of that means, I mean, what, what, you're, what you're implying is a, a, a shift in some cases, in the way we do democracy, you know, right now we do democracy by having two parties that make us or more that make us more afraid. Whoever can make their people most afraid of the other people wins, which is not a, a climate or culture or society positive way of moving to consensus. Right. Or we have the two sided old school parliamentary procedure, which one side wins, the other side loses, then we move on. So there's no consensus building. It, that's not the way you you develop the fabric of a society, you know. So, and that's a place where digital tools are again interesting. Where you know, I there was a, they're gone now, but in New Zealand there was a platform called Lumio, which based it was a consensus building platform that used digital technology to imitate the General Assembly style of consensus building from the Occupy movement, and it worked really well. A lot of uh, local municipalities were doing it, or Polis that was developed here in the states that they used in. Um, in Taiwan for the, uh, to develop citizen councils. So uh, there are so many different places that to use, uh, potentially to use digital technology for good, and even to use digital technology for good in a way that outweighs the carbon footprint of every single one of these tools and that maybe the slavery footprint of every one of these tools that we're using to do all the good, but just maybe put that, that part aside. But where do you where do you start? I mean, because we could say we have to do everything. We have to build a commons with digital technology. We have to uh, um, change the way people understand crypto and digital currencies and create let systems and time dollars and other sorts of banks. Where do you begin? Well, see, I, you know, I think you said something really important, Doug, in terms of fear based systems. We need to move away from fear based systems that are really command and control that are deeply hierarchical to you know, what is more of a 21st century distributed leadership model where mm. there is power at all levels and there's flow of information and decision-making so that the systems locally and universal principles are, are, are in constant communication and flowing. 
And so that is the deep disruption we need to bring about and how digital technologies can help us in that philosophical change is very critical. And it makes me think, so some colleagues of mine have initiated something called the Indigenous Artificial Intelligence Protocol. It's how do we look at you know, artificial intelligence from an indigenous wisdom point of view and, and bringing, instead of having very linear ways of looking about things, is, is really allowing the circularity of life to influence how we look at algorithms. It's really how do we bring that way of thinking in everything we do? Because at the end of the day, technologies are tools that we as humans create. And so how do we have technologies that empower all, that move us away from command and control, and that help us live our interconnectedness in the same way that within biological systems? You know, if you have a body, you can't say, I'm going to choose between my liver and my heart. Everything matters. Everything's important. And it's how do we live that interconnectedness of the all organs, big and small, and give them the space they need to function so that the whole system is healthy. And so this is where we need to nudge and change and yeah. transform technology and have inclusive uh, innovations that really allow us to live our inter- interconnectedness more transparently, more effectively, and, and ensure that as we move forward, we're all building a system where we have to trust each other because everything is out there transparent in terms of how we're using it to build wealth. Are we doing it in ways that are creating greater asymmetry or not? And at the end of the day, it's really about how are we using it to create more caring societies, societies that live in more uh, conscious relationship with nature. And we, and we know if we're not doing it, we're going to have more fires, more floods, you know, more climate incidences. So this is really uh, we're faced with really critical, powerful natural forces and, and we have no choice. I mean, this is ultimately about a shift of power and a distribution of power. And that's uh, that's the critical mindset shift that I think many of these institutions have to adopt, right? We have to decentralize decision-making. We've got to spread power out, as you say, between those three levels. The Codes Action Plan talks about this. It, it talks about governance breakthroughs. And I can see that, I mean, for, from, from my side, we have to work with any actor that's willing to, to, to adopt that mindset shift. And that's why these coalitions of the willing are so critical where you have actors, whether they're cities or whether they're countries or NGOs or companies, where they want to already take on those sort of power redistributions, we've got to work with them and we've got to experiment with them. We've got to, you know, establish policy sandboxes and just start experimenting on how to do this because, frankly, we don't know how to do this. And it's going to require, you know, experimentation on a pretty massive scale before we get it right. And you see all these bright spots, as you say, Lumio and Polis, and there are various bright spots out there, but it is, it's a fundamental mindset shift and a power shift, and we're still experimenting. I think even in the UN system, I mean, to be frank, most governments and most UN actors are still decision-making kind of with analog techniques, because so much of it is power-based and so much of it is about relationship and trust. And I think we haven't yet figured out how to make that transition to start harnessing these these tools and replacing those social relationships and that power with a digital alternative. Which is interesting. I mean, when Elian talks about uh, indigeneity, it's interesting for me, what came to mind was, and I don't mean to get all Westworld on you, but digital technology as an indigenous life form, you know, the indigeneity of digital itself. Because um, digital, as digital came to us before corporations came and, and, yanked it into a different direction, digital technologies were based on sharing, 
right? We had terminals, we shared a processor together. So the whole bias of it was, oh, can I use these processes for these hours? And, and you signed up. It was a it was a sharing economy of technology. Or um, and digital technology, as Norbert Wiener wrote way back when, was based in feedback loops, constant feedback loops. And it was based in distributed power. Everything, it was a distributed system. So you had people when when digital technologies just started, you have people like Marshall McLuhan, who was a, a big Catholic who loved the medieval economy and medieval culture, saying, oh, now we can get the commons back. Now we can get distributism back. And and the the the, the economic social values of the Catholic Church, which, which whatever the problems of the Catholic Church were, they had distributism and subsidiarity as it's their essential economic models, which are maybe impossible to realize other than on a local scale. They're impossible to realize globally until you have digital technology. Now it's like, oh, we can actually manifest these more circular feedback uh, systems rather than a top-down command and control or or uh, extract and externalize systems that we're in. So we've got the technology, we've got people like us who get it. So now it's like, it seems like it should be easy to just, you know, like Christians just share the good news, right? This is where Doug, I think we have to get back. To, as you say, the early internet was like a success also because we put in place uh, global standards right from the outset, right? And we had kind of governance mechanisms that adopted global standards, interoperability standards that allowed the thing to work. And that's what we have to start doing, I think, now when it comes to sustainability and digitalization. We need to get those global standards in place as kind of the basic DNA of the, of the digital transformation process. Sustainability needs to be kind of hard-coded there. Otherwise, it's going to be it's going to be a mess, right? It's going to be totally fragmented. It's either going to be sustainability as determined by Google and Amazon and Facebook, or by a region or by a country, but it's not going to be a common standard, and that would be just a massive problem. And so yeah. that's one of the things that we're calling for. What are the global standards that we need to underpin digital sustainability? Global standards and uh, almost social norms. You know, we have an internet culture that because it's based in startups and unicorns and exponential growth, we have an internet culture that is burning a pyre in the worship of a coin. Right, we are we are proving our love for Bitcoin by burning a significant amount of the planet's resources in its honor. So there there has to be a, a, a I don't mean a religious side, although Neil Postman would say religion's the only way. A, a, a spiritual, a moral, an ethical, cultural realization that that helps us want to act in different ways. I think we need to reclaim the reality that the digital world has become our collective nervous system. And so what do we want this nervous system to be communicating, exchanging? Do we want it to be more caring, more fair? Do we want it to allow an inclusive world where all have the opportunity to give their best, to contribute collectively? And so it's how we look at it on that level of an ethical framework that is really embedded in shared values that is really urgently needed right now. Because there's 
way too much unconsciousness and way too much command and control that's creating the level of misinformation that is just going rampant. And so we need to transform that and realize the power of this system. If we looked at it really as our collective nervous system, how would we tweak it? What would we want from it? What kind of signaling would we want it to be spreading hate? Do we want it to be spreading more love, more caring? How do we ensure that collective intelligence allows all to be able to contribute in ways that make them able to contribute locally to what are the local needs, ecological, climatic governance systems that respect our ancestors and also co-create the ancestors we want to be? And so we really have to look at it with a depth of understanding that we haven't brought to it collectively yet. You know, humans react to incentives and those incentives are driven by business models and all the business models right now, most of the digital business models are wrong. They're creating the wrong incentives. They're accelerating the wrong behaviors. They're, 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 They're not really thinking about what happens when you scale X, Y, and Z product or behavior to a global level. What are the implications of that in the real world? And so I think that's the other big kind of disruption is looking at those business models and asking, as you say, you know, how do those business models actually start to become much more circular? How do they start to amplify the kind of values we want to see? How do they balance profit, you know, planet purpose? All these things that for me, that business model question is is kind of the linchpin for everything. We have to get that right. And if that if that continues to provide the wrong incentives, we're never going to get kind of sustainability scaling. Right. And I've, I've written, you know, five or six books arguing this from different angles, basically trying to convince people, right? Whether, oh, this is a better way to do business and you'll make more money for longer, or this is a bad way to do business and you're going to, you know, destroy the world. And, and, you know, I, and I've tried, you know, and, and even with the, the, the throwing rocks, the Google bus looks at, you know, how do we use distributism and how we can employ that and why it would be so much better. But what I don't really have other than word of mouth and writing books and making documentaries, I don't really have a theory of change. It's what I realized. You know, I've got I get emails from people like Steve Bannon saying, I agree with you. And I'm like, well, okay, I, I appreciate that on a level that he sees the same endpoint world of people being happy as I do, but look at the way he wants to get there, right? Through accelerationism <laughs> and the destruction of the planet, and we start over. You know, there's a problem then. Are you developing a theory of change now? Do you have, is it the way I, I, I like the there that you want to get to? What's the, how do we, how do we go there? And do we have time? Yeah, I mean, we can answer parts of that question. Do we have a, a grand theory of change? I think in the digital world, you can never quite have a grand theory of change for everything. But as Elian said, looking at the systemic issues and kind of systemic thinking and systems thinking is a key part of it. So in my in my mind, it's a multi-step process. But the first thing we have to put in place is a much better system of transparency. That's kind of, that's for me, that's absolutely fundamental. We have to understand across the entire value chain of every product and services, where it's coming from, where it's going, what are the impacts, and make that as transparent as possible. Because that, I think that's the first step towards any kind of real accountability. And it's the first step towards really empowering people to, to choose products and services based on their values. So without that kind of transparency element, we we have nothing. And so in my mind, you get transparency by investing in some of these key digital tools like right. the digital so just, just, just for the clarity, for the people to understand. So you're saying like, I could walk into a store and there's maybe two pairs of reading glasses there. And on each of them, maybe it says, 
What's the total number of miles, the resources to make this travel? Oh, there's 20,000 miles of, of, of travel involved in these ones. And these ones only have you know 600 miles of, of things that have moved around. So I'm going to take the 600 because it means that much less oil, that much less travel, and that much more localism. I mean, things, whatever metrics we choose, that there's just going to be so much more transparency. It's going to be so much more obvious, just like there's calories on our different foods today we can look at, there's going to be emissions, exploitation, slavery footprint, uh, labor on, on everything in ways that we can measure. And this really comes down to more data-driven decision-making. We know what we're, you know, before you'd order anything when you went to, to a restaurant and you'd be like, ah, blindly, you know, it's okay. But when you have the calorie count for, you know, a coffee at 600 calories, you think about it. It's like, you, you do. Know I just <laughs> did. I was going to get a blueberry muffin at Starbucks. I saw it's like 480 <laughs> calories for one muffin. I was like, that's all right. Right. And it's really about this idea of how do we align our values with the good we want to accelerate and ensure that we are also aware of the unintended consequences of digitalization. And we are and we're doing work that ensures we minimize those consequences. And so I see that framework as a really critical one when as we move forward, because we really have to the complexity requires we, we, we look at different levers at the same time. It's really hard to use that. It's hard to use data, though, because, I mean, as you know, back in the Thatcher days, they would pick a data point to incentivize people around, and then people would screw up everything else in order to get that that data point. It's really what's the essential actionable data? Because you can get a lot of data, but be so confused, not know how to use it effectively. And this is what the Coalition of the Willing is really helping do is say, what are the minimum data sets that we need to work with to ensure that we're working at the levers that can transform the system, that can transform the current power dynamics and can allow us to live within planetary boundaries. And this is why it's so important that the coalition of the willing brings all of the willing together. And so you're talking about, you know, trying to, to change people's minds. I think what we need to do is we need to bring together all the people who get it so that we're working collectively more um, effectively with more influence, with more power and being able to show the people who are still um, hesitant the power of our collective action. And so this is where we really have to come back to the fundamentals of social movements, of people working together to create and vision new spaces that people didn't think were possible. And the more we advance collectively with the people who get it, because right now there are a lot of people who get it, but they're not all connected. So I right. think we first need to accelerate connecting all the people who get it. My problem is the majority of of would-be reformers in my neck of the woods are largely young, well-meaning tech bros who have a stack for fixing society, you know, and it's just a matter of, you know, upscaling humans to rise to the occasion of digital technology, you know, and it's this, how do we use tech on people to make people better or, uh, uh, Ultimately, they're these kind of almost uh, muskian, thelian, libertarian approaches. I'm not that all libertarianism is bad, or that all market uh, uh, games are 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 futile. But I've shied away from most 
for most of these efforts because they're so totalizing. And so uh, they're like a, a, a media lab vision of, you know, the perfect anticipatory techn technological parenting rather than uh, uh, a flourishing of, of human autonomy and human community. Yeah, I feel you. I, I feel you as well. And and uh, I mean, as you say, I get an email a day now about some kind of tech stack that's going to save the world right. or some kind of platform or some kind of this or some kind of that. Uh, and a lot of, as you say, they're very well-meaning. Um, they haven't necessarily thought about that systemic level change and they haven't really thought about what it does to humanity and, and the nature of being human. Um, I don't think we want to fully digitalize everything about ourselves. I think our 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 social, we are social creatures. And I think, you know, those social relationships are key. That's what makes us human. Those interactions and that kind of feeling of family and community. And there are just things that shouldn't be digitalized. Right. I mean, because my fears, what I want to do is avoid what we did last time, you know, with industrialization. And there was a lot of well-meaning industrialization. Uh, oh, let's give Africa tractors and fertilizers. Oh, and these companies are going to come in and be heroes and do all, and, and will destroy their topsoil, make them absolutely dependent on the World Bank and, and uh, Western industrialization, destroy local market. Uh, and I get scared when we're, when we're talking. And yes, we want digital to do good for all these people. And we look at, oh, what an what a environmentally responsible blockchain could do for trade in a developing nation. Oh, my God, it, it's huge, the, the, the good that can happen. But as soon as it feels like Google and Facebook and Musk and whoever hear about it, they come in and implement it, and it ends up working against our intention. So it's like, how do we make this second verse of well-meaning technological uh, uh, deployment not do what we did last time? So I, I think there's a, a really critical uh, component that's gender. A, a few weeks ago, I, I was uh, moderating a panel on women's leadership in terms of inclusive climate action. And what we realized is that less than 0.2% of climate funding actually goes to gender-driven uh, action projects. And so I had an amazing group of, of women, some working on the technological side, some working on the environmental side, some working on the investment side, some on the uh, knowledge transfer side, and all thinking around how do we accelerate more inclusive innovation in the future? Because, you know, you were talking about the tech bros. And I think what we need is how do we have technology where everybody is contributing and not a small, very particular part of the po population? We really need to ensure that the diversity of, of human views and human perspectives and experiences are brought to the table when we're using technology towards climate action, towards living within planetary boundaries. It's it can't be we can't. It's not a savior, um, uh, you know, that's going to come and and <laughs> bring us up the mountain. We are all going to have to collectively uh, allow that action to happen. And so it's really important that we understand what are all of those initiatives around the world that are doing great work that need support to be able to allow more inclusion and in how we're harnessing technology. And so we have to think about it. Are we creating greater division in terms of who has power, decision-making and action in technology? And that fundamentally will determine how technology serves all of us or benefits some. And it comes down to who's benefiting. 
I have a really short story. Uh, so during COVID, uh, a number of, of female entrepreneurs um, in Zambia were, were doing work to, to try and keep entrepreneurship flows around agricultural products going. And, and some of these didn't have access to a cell phone and being able to trade and buy and, and just um, transact digitally. And in this group of movement who are trying to do this type of work around just maintaining the logistical system of the agribusiness value chain, 10 were forced to physically be moving around in the early days of COVID. And, and, and they all died. And if you think if we had simply empowered those women with digital tools to be able to transact in the safety of their home and minimize contact while we didn't have a vaccine yet, how that could have changed not only their lives, but their communities. This is a really small example. But you think about that power of digital connectivity and what we take for granted and how for some people, this can be the difference between life and death, between being able to contribute to economies or leaving behind a burden of children without mothers who have to figure it out for themselves. So it, it really comes down to how are we ensuring that all can participate, have, can all participate safely? And, and it, it fundamentally comes down to that. And so you can't be alone in your Silicon Valley beautiful office thinking about that. You have to connect to Agnes in Zimbabwe. You have to be able to connect to somebody else in Laos and be able to understand what are the problematics happening there? What are other problematics happening in Ecuador? And how do we ensure that all voices are contributing to empowering all people to contribute positively to this digital economy, not towards misinformation, not towards more mis uh, for fear mongering, but really towards more empowered citizen based action. Right. We've done the Robert Moses designing a world, you know, of, for the benefit of the people. You know, he was a big uh, uh, architect of the architect of New York. So we know what it's like for a white guy sitting in his office to have a master plan for everybody else. It doesn't work. And, and basically what you're saying, which really is the, is the, the message of Team Human, the, the, the show and the book and all the work I've been doing, is that the, the, if you want something to be better for all of humanity, then have more of humanity and more kinds of humanity involved. You know, it's pretty darn simple. And then once you do that, you realize, well, if you want things to be good for the whole planet, which we need to live, then we better have more forms of life um, uh, taken into account as well. Because, you know, uh, human beings are not doing a very good job at shepherding our brethren species on this on this planet right now either. Yeah, I couldn't have said it any better, Doug, as, as you say. I mean, and, and just to be clear, Team Humans inspired a lot of our my thinking and a lot of the thinking of codes. I mean, it's exactly the right message that we want to help amplify. And I think that's that's exactly the that's exactly at the at this moment in time, that's a key role I think the UN can play, right? How do we connect communities? How do we convene these conversations? How do we how do we help balance these power asymmetries? How do we create these global standards? How do we look at digital governance? I think these are this is a role that we can increasingly should be playing uh, to to exactly that to sort of allow more people to contribute and to empower, enable, and give them more agencies to sort of cre create our our future. 
that this goes back to to how you beautifully put it in terms of of team human in terms of humanity how do we collectively come to the table collectively and allow everybody to contribute and that's really the universal simple framework mm. that we need to build on and if we hold nothing else in mind just that will change how we innovate, how we allow others and everybody to feel included and feel that they belong. How do we create frameworks to allow everybody to bring their knowledge systems, their culture, their histories, the wisdom of their ancestors together to say, there is space for me at this table to bring who I am collectively, my past, present, and my vision to the future. And so if we can create that framework, then we can allow everybody to contribute to this emerging future that we want to have. And as a, uh, Indigenous elders in, in, in Canada think about is how do we, how do we create decision-making processes for seven generations from now? And so that really requires that humility to say, I'm creating space for others to be able to contribute. Beautiful. Well, we're good. We're we're all about finding the others here, and uh, and including them in uh, as as so they're no longer others. Uh, so thank you for that, and thank you. Thanks for being on Team Human. Thank uh, uh, in so many ways, and uh, and for persevering through what I'm sure are many uh, difficult, many difficult times and moments to uh, 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 engender a uh, a global flourishing rather than the apocalypse so many people seem I just so wanna, com- committed to. <laughs> I, I just want to add one last thing. So in 1994, I was 22 years old. I'm from Rwanda. I was writing my master's thesis in Montreal. And while I was writing my thesis, I didn't know what was happening in my country. I didn't know if anybody I loved was alive or dead. And to think that today I'm part of a group of co-champions with David saying, how do we collectively bring all of humanity together to vision a collective future where we all belong? And for me, that's the power, the power of feeling isolated, alone, and completely powerless, and then finding a community of belonging, of visioning to say, how do we co-create a future that's safe and nurturing for all? And so I'm just thankful for the work that David was doing before I met him, the work you've been doing, Doug. And it's all about all of those collective dreams that we're bringing to the table for a safer, more transparent, more trusting world. And so it's really about how do we use technology to create that and allow more peace in the world. And I'm just thankful for the communities of people all around the world thinking forward in that direction. And it's about how do we connect all of them so that our power drowns out the fear mongering in the world. Beautiful. Well, thank you. You are not alone. Uh, I said to you and to all of our listeners, you are not alone. Um, which is half the half the struggle is realizing that. So thank you. Thanks. This has been great. <laughs> thanks. Yeah. Thanks, Doug. And you've also, as I said, you've been a major source of inspiration and, and guidance and thought leadership in this sector. So we owe you a big debt of gratitude. Oh, well, you just paid it by coming on Team Human. <laughs> <laughs> and thank you for being on Team Human. Our guests today were David Jensen and Elian Ubalijaro. 
of the Coalition for Digital Environmental Sustainability. You can find out more about them at sparkblue.org, where you can find out more about them and all of our guests at teamhuman.fm, where you can also become a supporting member of the team. Everybody remember, we're going to do a live salon in the Kibitz Room on July 23rd at 12 p.m. New York Eastern Time. I hope I get to see you there. Team Human is produced by Joshua Chapdelin and edited by Luke Robert Mason. Our opening tune is from Fugazi and our closing music behind me right now by Mike Watt on bass. You've been on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.